do not love the world or the things in the world. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. John chapter 5. You got your Bibles. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. We have two weeks left in our sermon series going through 1 John. And this morning, I want to talk to you about what it means to be born again. Uh, Now, three times in these five verses, John uses this little phrase, born of God. And I think that John is getting that language from Jesus, where Jesus talks about in the Gospels what it means to be born again. You know, back in the 1970s, so a little bit before my time, uh, the phrase born again became really popular. It became really uh, a part of the religious language of America. There's a lot of talk of born-again Christians. You know, I've always been amused by that phrase. Uh, Saying someone's a born-again Christian makes as much sense as saying I'm a married husband. Or there's a three-sided triangle. Or there's wet water or whatever else it might be. It's in part of the definition. If you're a Christian, you are born again. But nevertheless, it's beside the point. Uh, It became popular first in the 70s with Chuck Colson. A lot of you guys were familiar with Chuck Colson. He was a Watergate conspirator who went to prison, ended up coming to faith in Christ. And the title of his memoir in 1975 was Born Again. Following year, 1976, Jimmy Carter's running for president and says that he is born again. Three years later, all the presidential candidates. And uh, four years later, 1980, you got Reagan, you got Carter, you got John Anderson. They're all born again. And next thing you know, Everybody is born again, and they're doing these polls, and people are saying, yes, I am born again. But here's the thing. When a phrase becomes popular, it often begins to lose its meaning. When we hear it so much, familiarity breeds contempt, and we have to stop and ask the question, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to be born again, or as John says in 1 John 5, born of God, and what difference does it make in my life? That's what we're going to talk about from this text this morning. The theme of 1 John is assurance. The theme is so that you may know that your faith is genuine. And in this paragraph, John wants us to know how we can know that we really have been born again, that we really have been born of God. And here is the main point that I hope to show you from this text this morning. Being born again transforms every aspect of our lives and leads to faith, love, obedience, and victory. With these things in mind, let's read this text together. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth contained in your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for the incredible miracle for those of us who are are followers of Christ, Lord, that once we were dead and now we are alive. 
that you have caused us to be born again, that you have given us new life in Christ. I thank you for that truth, Lord. I pray if there's anyone here who has not been born again, that through the preaching of the gospel this morning, you would work that miracle in their hearts. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand this word this morning, that we might grow deeper in our assurance of our faith. Lord, that we might grow deeper in our commitment to serve you in every aspect of our lives. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so before we can really understand what's going on in this text, I think it would be helpful for us to actually start in John chapter 3. We need to understand what it means to be born again, what it means to be born of God, before we can really get what John is telling us in 1 John chapter 5. So you can either follow along the screens and turn with me to John chapter 3. Uh, in the first service, I called it regular John, because I accidentally said 1 John, but y'all don't need to know that, but you do now. So John chapter 3. I love this story. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Pause. Let's chat for a minute. Nicodemus clearly likes Jesus. He's interested in Jesus' teaching and all these things, but not enough to go public with it, right? So he comes to Jesus by night, arranges this secret meeting with Jesus, and he starts with a little bit of flattery. Jesus, we know that you must be coming from God because of all these signs that you do. Jesus has none of it. Not in the mood for small talk, not in the mood for flattery. He gets right to the point. He cuts through all the other stuff. And he says, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, in Scripture, to enter into God's kingdom is to become a Christian, right? When you become a Christian, you enter into God's kingdom. You become a citizen of God's kingdom. So understand what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, unless you have been born again, you can't even see the kingdom, much less enter it. You can't even see it. Unless you've been born again, you are spiritually blind, he's telling Nicodemus. Let's see if Nicodemus understands what Jesus is saying. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Kind of weird. It just went over and over again in the Gospels. I love it. They just totally missed the point. So anyway, let's keep going. Verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, no, dude, you totally missed the point. This is not about physical birth. This is about spiritual birth. This is someone who has been born of the Spirit. And just as conception culminating in birth is the beginning of new life physically, so regeneration or the new birth or being born of the Spirit is the beginning of new life, spiritually speaking. He's saying, we are dead in our sins apart from Christ, and we are born again. We are given new life. And unless that happens, we can't see the kingdom. We can't enter the kingdom. We can't follow Christ until the Spirit does this work in our hearts. Theologians often call this the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration means the same thing as being born again. 
It's when God gives us new life. This is one definition that I found helpful by Roland McCune. He said, regeneration is the instantaneous, supernatural impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. I get it. That's a dense definition. So let's unpack it for a minute. First of all, regeneration is instantaneous. It happens like that. One minute we're dead, one minute we're alive, right? It's not a lengthy process. It's an event. It happens like that. We're dead, we're alive. And it's supernatural, This is a work of God. This is something that God does in us. It's not something that we do for ourselves. We can't bring ourselves back to life. God is the one who gives us new life. We cannot create the new birth in us any more than we could create our first birth, right? It's something that God does. It is supernatural. I one time saw a book with the title, How to Be Born Again. There's a long book, but it could have been a short book. It could have been two words. You can't. God does that. This is something that God does. God causes us to be born again. Final part of the definition. It's the impartation of life to the dead. Spiritual life to the spiritually dead. And the Holy Spirit is the one who does this. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives us new life in conjunction with the preaching of the gospel. It says in Titus chapter 3, and by the way, we're actually going to start studying Titus in a couple of weeks. We're going to go through this book next when we get through 1 John. But this is what it says in Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He's saying we're not saved by our own good works, but when the Spirit changes our hearts and lives and we cry out to God in faith. Summarize all this. What does it mean to be born again? It means that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. And the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, gives us new life so that we cry out to God in faith. Think about Lazarus. What Lazarus was physically, every Christian is spiritually. We were once dead and God calls us into new life. And what John is now going to do, as we're now 10 or 15 minutes into the sermon and finally getting to the text, what he's going to do in 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5, is show us how we can know that we've been born again. What does it look like in our lives once we have been born again? So I want to give you four things here, all right? Everyone who has been born born again, first of all, believes the gospel. Everyone who has been born again believes the gospel. Look with me at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. If you like grammar, listen up. If you don't like grammar, also listen up. Because this is important, guys. God inspired grammar in these verses. And the verb tenses and things like that, I know it might sound boring, but it matters. It's important, especially in a verse like this. Pay close attention here. Everyone who believes, that's present tense, That means I am right now actively, continually believing. Everyone who believes in the present that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now, in the Greek, this is the perfect tense. That means action that has taken place in the past that has consequences on into the future. So this is why this matters. Everyone who is believing right now has already been born again. And that new birth has consequences even now. That is what John is telling us. 
This is the way that John Stott put it. The combination of the present tense believes and the perfect tense has been born is important. It shows clearly that believing is the consequence, not the cause of the new birth. Our present continuing activity of believing is the result, therefore the evidence of our past experience of new birth by which we became and remain God's children. Let me put that in, in plain terms. God causes us to be born again, and it is that new birth that enables us to believe and receive Christ. The new birth comes first. Scripture is pretty clear. Unless the Holy Spirit works in our hearts, we cannot truly surrender our lives to Christ and receive him. Our stubborn, sinful wills will not bow before Christ until the Holy Spirit changes our hearts first. This is what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It's a heavy passage, isn't it? He's saying that this is who we were without Jesus and before Jesus, that we were dead in our sins, that we're following the course of this world, that we're carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, that we're by nature children of wrath. This is where we are, and Jesus says we can't even see the kingdom when we're in this state, much less enter it, unless God intervenes first unless God gives us new life. You know, Stephen Lawson's a preacher I like to listen to from time to time, and he was talking about this text in Ephesians chapter 2, and he said that one time he was in seminary, and the pastor read, and you were dead in sins, uh, and, he, and he asked the professor, rather, and he asked the students, what can a dead man do? And one of his students yelled out, stink. It's a pretty good answer. As apart from Christ, that's what we can do, spiritually speaking. Paul takes it a step farther in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. Apart from Christ, we are hostile to God. It said, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It's not possible for it to. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is why this is significant. Unless God works this miracle in us, we don't come to him. We are totally dependent on the grace of God. So how do we put all these pieces together? How does saving faith relate to the new birth? Saving faith is the natural result and the first act of those who have been born again. It's the natural result and the first act of those who have been born again. Think about it this way. What's the first thing that a baby does when they're born? They cry. They scream. I know. I've been in the room twice especially Leah. Let me tell y'all, when Leah was born a little over two years ago, she was just screaming like crazy, even more so than Hannah. And when the doctor got her, he said, wow, this is a feisty one. We think he was a prophet. <laughs> but anyway, that's the first thing a baby does. When they're born, they cry. The first thing that a newborn baby Christian does when they are born again is cry out to God in faith in the same way. We are born again, and the first thing we do is we open our eyes, and we see Christ as glorious, and we turn from our sin, and we surrender our hearts and lives to him. That's how we know we've been born again. And friends, that is nothing short of a miracle. Scripture says that when we come to Christ, we are a new creation. 
that all things have been made new, that we have new life. Becoming a Christian is not a decision to clean up your act. It is a death and a resurrection. God causes me to be born again. He gives me new life. It is nothing short of miraculous. God does this through the preaching of the gospel. So the first way that we know that we've been born again is when we believe the gospel. But the second way is when we love God and others. When we love God and others. Let's look at the rest of verse one. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Whoever loves the Father loves those who have been born of him. The new birth creates love in our hearts for our heavenly Father and also for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have heard that sermon 67 times this summer, right? That when we love God, the overflow will be love for others. But I think John's actually about to put a new spin on this whole thing. It's really fascinating to me. Look with me at verse 2 now. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Right? So it's usually we know that we love God by the way that we love other people. John's now flipped that. Now he's saying we know that we love other people by the way that we love God. In this way, John is telling us that we love others by loving God. We love others by loving God. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and when we keep his commandments. How is this possible? How is it that we love others by loving God? Let me tell you. God's commandments are all centered around loving other people. Look at the last six of the Ten Commandments. If I love God and I keep his commandments, then I'm going to honor my father and mother, that I'm not going to kill, that I'm not going to commit adultery, that I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to covet, so on and so forth. What about on a positive side? When I love God and I keep his commandments, then I will serve other people instead of being selfish. When I love God and I obey his word, I will be generous instead of hoarding everything I have. When I love God, then I will be more forgiving toward other people when they have hurt me instead of being bitter and holding a grudge. I will be more patient and kind and gracious in the way that I speak to other people instead of being angry and critical, so on and so forth. When we love and obey God, the natural result will be love for other people. And here's the principle that we need to learn. If you become a better Christian, you will become a better everything else. Let me put it another way. You can love others best if you don't love them first, but you love God first. For a lot of people, man, we're struggling in our relationships, and what's really needed is a deeper walk with God, a deeper walk with Christ, a deeper commitment to holiness in your life. I think that's true for, let me use a couple examples. First of all, for a lot of our marriages. I think a lot of our marriages can struggle, and a lot of times we think the issue is between us, and sometimes it is, but a lot of times, man, if we both just focus on growing in our relationship with God and loving and serving God and drawing closer to Him, it's the triangle that we do in premarital, right? That we both, as we grow closer to God, by default grow closer to one another. We focus on our relationship with God. This is true in our parenting. Man, when I focus on my relationship with the Lord and I spend time in his presence and the word and prayer, it makes me more patient with my kids. It gives me greater wisdom in the way that I interact with them. This applies to your workplace, to your friendships. Fill in the blank. When we love God first and we grow in our relationship with him, the natural overflow will be love for other people. How many of you guys have ever, you know, it's like 10 o'clock and you're at work and you're like, man, I can tell I didn't read my Bible today. 
You can tell I didn't pray today. Anybody else? Is that just me? Man, I can tell when I don't focus on my relationship with God and prioritize it, usually I take it out on everybody else, right? Because I'm more stressed more easily. I get worried about things that I shouldn't be worried about. I get frustrated more easily. When I love God first, I can love others best. So we focus on our relationship with God, and in doing so, the overflow is love for others. The next way that we know that we have been born again is when we obey God's commands, when we obey God's commands. Verse 2 says, When we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So the way that we love God is by keeping his commandments. Jesus put it this way in John 14, 15. He said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And by the way, I don't think that was a threat. I don't think he looked at his disciples and said, If you love me, I swear, you will keep my commandments. Now, like, I don't think that's how he said it. I think it was more of a, a statement of fact. If you love me, the natural result, the overflow in your life will be that you will keep my commandments. If you love me, this is what will follow from that. To show that your love is genuine, you will keep my commandments. That's what he's telling us here. But again, John puts a little bit of a spin on it here. He gives us a unique insight in this verse that he hasn't really focused on in this letter so far. John shows us that God's commands that we are called to obey, God's commands are for our good. God's commands are for our good. I love the end of verse 3. I've been meditating on it for weeks now because I just love it. It says, And his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. That is, they're not intended to weigh us down. They're not intended to restrict our joy. They're not like ankle weights. Anybody ever used those things before? You ever go on a run and you get these dorky looking things, sorry if you use them, and you put them on your ankles and it's supposed to strengthen your legs by, you know, making it harder. But here's the deal. I think we often think about God's commands that way. There's something that's intended just to weigh us down, to make life more difficult. And if I could just do what I wanted, things would go better. For being honest, we think that way sometimes. We think of God's commandments as burdensome. But Scripture is going to show us that nothing could be farther from the truth. Guys, let me say something that might sound crazy to a lot of people. I think that Christians ought to have the most fun. I think we ought to be the most happy, joyful people on the planet. First and foremost, because of all that God has done for us in Christ. And second, because His commandments are not burdensome. And when we live life God's way, it works better because He's not stupid because he knows what he's talking about. He is the creator of everything. He knows how life is to function. It says in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is in my heart. I love obeying your law. The longest chapter in the Bible is a love poem about God's law. Obedience to God will lead to more joy in your life, not less. Because his commandments are not Burdensome. Now, let me be clear. This does not mean that God's standards for our obedience are low. Quite the contrary. God has very high expectations and standards for his people, the highest. He says, be holy as I am holy. But these commandments are intended to lead us into joy, not away from it. And God is far too often caricatured as this cosmic killjoy sitting up in heaven, giving us a list of thou shalt nots, so that we won't have any fun. That's slander. 
against our God. Every single law in the Bible is given to lead us into joy, not away from it, because God is a good and loving father who knows what is best for his children. You know, yesterday we were up at the new building working, and, you know, we were having a great time. I'm really grateful for all you guys who came out and were helping us. And uh, my girls were there. They were getting to run around and see the new building, and they were having a lot of fun. And so they were up on the stage helping, quote-unquote, uh, Faye McNear, and she's up there sweeping and doing some stuff. And the girls decided, you know what, this is a good time to take off our shoes. Might as well make ourselves at home in this construction site. So they take off their shoes, and I see it, and Megan points it out. I run up there. I'm like, all right, girls, got to put your shoes back on. They start throwing a fit. Like, they don't want to put their shoes back on, and I'm so mean for making them put their shoes on. And as I'm, you know, kind of wrestling with them a little bit, trying to get their shoes back on, Faye walks over, and she pulls out a nail. She shows them, I just found this on the floor, guys. Your dad is putting on your shoes because he loves you and knows what's best for you. And I was like, thank you, Faye. I needed another illustration for tomorrow. <laughs> now, here's the deal. God's commands are like that. It's because we can't see the danger that comes from sin in our lives. His commands are for our good, and they are to lead us further into joy. And here's the deal. We find God's commands to be burdensome only when we believe the lies of the world, that sin will bring us more joy than Christ. That's when the commands start to feel heavy. John Piper put it brilliantly. He said, it's a burden to be sexually chaste if you believe the message of the world that fornication or adultery really will give you more satisfaction. It's a burden to be honest on your tax returns if you believe the message of the world that more money would bring you satisfaction. It's a burden to witness to a colleague if you believe the message of the world that Christians are foolish and getting egg on your face is to be avoided at all costs. It's a burden to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, if you believe the message of the world that more satisfaction comes from keeping up the front of strength. So on and so forth. Obedience is a burden when we believe the lies of the world that sin will bring us more joy than Christ. So what do we do? We understand that God makes clear and even high demands for our behavior, but he does so as our creator and our father who knows what's best for us. And even if he does give us burdens, those burdens are light. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So how do we know that we've been born again? When we believe the gospel, when we love God and others, when we obey God's commands, those commands that are not burdensome, and then finally, when we overcome the world by faith. When we overcome the world by faith. Verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Again, everyone who has been born of God, this new birth experience has already taken place. A consequence in their life is that they overcome the world, or they have victory over the world. Remember what the world is in 1 John. We studied this two months ago now. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. 
the temptation to gratify our flesh instead of glorify God. That is what the world does. So to overcome the world here is to cling to our faith in Jesus in the midst of a world that is trying to pull us away from him. It is to cling to our faith in Jesus instead of caving to the pressure to gratify our flesh. It's to overcome sin and temptation and to overcome the temptation to give up when we face trials and persecution in this life. This is what it means to have victory as a Christian. Far too often we think of victory in earthly terms, whether it be success or wealth or health or any of those things. But a truly victorious Christian life is the person who is overcoming sin and temptation, a person who will not give in to the pressures of the world just finished a really good book called The Korean Pentecost. It's a book about how the gospel first came to Korea. Uh, so in 1886, the first con known convert in Korea was baptized. Less than a century later, about 90 years later, there were over 2.5 million Christians in Korea. How did the gospel grow so rapidly? And here's another fact for you, that almost that entire time, they were under severe, brutal persecution first under the Japanese, and then later under communism. Brutal persecution. There were stories about during the Japanese occupation in World War II from 1937 to 1945, the Japanese said that all of their subjects had to bow at these shrines. They had to worship at these shrines in order to show loyalty to the government. And when the Christians refused to do so and called it idolatry to bow at the shrine of a false god, many of them were imprisoned, they were tortured, they were beaten, Many of them died of malnourishment and disease. It was a brutal time. And these Christians were suffering greatly for their faith. And we have to ask the question, were they victorious? From an outward perspective, we'd look at that and say, of course not. They're in jail and they're starving and they're diseased and they're being tortured. Of course they're not victorious. They're being defeated. Quite the opposite because it was through their suffering that the gospel was growing rampantly. It was multiplying all across Korea through their suffering. That's what victory looks like. The strength to cling to Jesus, even in the face of the greatest pressure, the hardest things that the world can throw at us. That is exactly what victory looks like. And our brothers and sisters who are heroes of the faith, those of whom the world is not worthy, who gave their lives back then, they were more than conquerors through Christ. Romans 8.37 says, In all these things, no matter what we face, we are more than conquerors, more than victorious through him who loved us. Let me apply this. As Christians, because we have been born again, the result will be that we will overcome the world, that we will overcome our sin. We will overcome temptations and pressures to give in. Because of that, let me tell you, there is no place in our lives for a defeatist attitude as Christians. There is no place for this mopey, woe is me, I'm never going to overcome this sin, I'm never going to get through this trial attitude as Christians. None. Because we have victory through Jesus. We overcome the world through Jesus. It's what he says. I read one story this week as well about a soldier in the army of Alexander the Great. And he was acting like a coward in battle. When he should have been pressing ahead, he was lingering behind. So Alexander the Great pulled him aside and said, Soldier, what's your name? The soldier said, Alexander. Alexander the Great said, Then fight bravely or change your name. 
Christians, let's fight bravely or change our names. We bear his name. We are more than conquerors through Christ. So let's fight bravely. We overcome the sin in our lives. We overcome the temptations of the world, not on our own strength, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we know that we have been born again. So let me leave you with a few takeaways this morning as we close. First of all, you must be born again. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You must be born again. Apart from that, believing, loving, obeying, and overcoming are not possible. It is the new birth that enables us to do all of these things. Far too many people are believing the lie that they can clean up their life all on their own, that they can come to God through self-effort or through self-help or any of these things. But guys, we're not sick in our sin. We're not wounded in our sin. We are dead in our sin. And God must give us new life so that we can come to him in faith and receive him into our lives. This happens through the preaching of the gospel. And this is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God, though we are fallen in sin, he loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into this world. Jesus is the son of God who lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sin in our place. He bodily rose from the grave three days later so that now when we turn from our sin, when we trust in Christ alone and receive him into our life, we have eternal life. And God works this miracle in our hearts of giving us new life. You must be born again. If you're here today and that's never happened in your life, I'd like to invite the prayer team to come forward at this time. We have people who'd love to talk with you, who would love to pray with you during this last song or after the service. Next takeaway is this. Let believing, loving, and obeying God be your highest joy. Be your highest joy. His commandments are not burdensome, guys. They are for our good. The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins by saying that the chief end of man, or the whole purpose we're here, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Piper altered that by saying it's to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The point is, we were created to find our highest joy and delight in God. His commandments are not burdensome. So let's seek to find our highest joy in believing his promises and loving him and others and obeying his commandments. Last takeaway. Just a reminder that we have victory through Jesus, that we're on the winning team, that Jesus wins that he has already overcome the world and there's coming a day when he will return to make all things new. This is what we need to remember when we're tempted to sin, when we're tempted to cave to the pressures of the world, that we have victory through Jesus. And again, I'm not, I don't like spoilers. Nobody does. I don't know if you've read this whole book, but let me just spoil one part for you. Jesus wins and we win with him, right? We win. That should give us confidence to continue to fight bravely until the day of final victory. You know, football season's coming up. I know you guys know that. Maybe you're not as obsessive as I am about it, but football season's coming up in a little over a month and starting training camp, all that. You don't need to know that. So let's just say in two months from now, you go home from church, because of course you always come to church on Sundays, uh, and you're sitting at home, you're watching the game. It's the Niners game because the, for the purpose of illustration, the team's up by five touchdowns. So let's say 
this team is up by five touchdowns and there's like a minute in the fourth left in the fourth quarter. And you look over, the camera pans over to the sideline shot of the team that's up by five touchdowns the minute left and they look so dejected and defeated. They're weeping. They're like, woe is us. This is terrible. You're looking at them like, what are you doing? Can you read? Like, look at the scoreboard. You're up by five touchdowns and you guys are whining and you're moping and you look just, what is going on here? Don't you know that you're on the winning team? That's ridiculous. Don't you realize, Christian, that you are on the winning team? John says we are in the last hour. We're in the fourth quarter of the history of the world. We are up by way more than five touchdowns. We're on the winning team. So there is no place for this attitude that says, I'll never overcome this sin in my life. Because if you are in Christ, yes, you will. Sin will not reign over you, Paul says. It will no longer be your master. It will no longer be your Lord. He says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You have everything that you need to fight bravely, to overcome sin, to overcome temptation, to overcome the temptation, to abandon your profession of faith in Jesus, to have victory on that final day. That's the promise that we have. We have victory through Jesus. So keep your eyes on him and continue to fight bravely until that final day. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this miracle that you have done in us, that you've caused us to be born again to a living hope. So Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would continue to help us to grow in our faith, continue to help us to glorify you in every aspect of our lives. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.